The world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve from Blackmagic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layered timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve is available from $995. Current users can download the updates for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagicdesign.com. This episode is also brought to you by Screenlight.tv. Screenlight.tv is a video review and approval service for the post-production industry. Post-production teams can now easily share videos and production files with clients worldwide. Utilize their project management and team collaboration tools that include asset management, frame-accurate video feedback, proactive security, and more. All at a price that won't break your production's budget. Use the video review and approval service trusted by post-professionals throughout the world. Screenlight.tv Screenlight.tv Upload anything, get feedback, and finish projects faster. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, I'm your host Gordon Burkell, and this episode we have something a little special. So, I sat down with an editor named Roger Matusi. And if you haven't heard of Roger, his work includes Fido, Trailer Park Boys, Countdown to Liquor Day, as well as Hemlock Grove, and many other hugely successful projects. So, the one thing I love about sitting with Roger is our discussions go pretty much anywhere. And I had actually taken over uh, teaching a course at a local college for Roger. And when I was going through his notes, I came across that he was going to focus an entire class on transitions. And not the transitions like a crossfade, but transitioning from one scene to the other. How do we do this to carry the audience over, get them set up for the next scene, and get them moving? And it reminded me a lot of how I learned to do transitions. And the way I was taught was an editor named John Kramer would go through scripts with me and take famous films, take anything that he thought had great transitions, and would break the transitions down and sort of go through the process of making that shift from one scene to the next. Whether it was a documentary, a fiction, a television show, a cartoon, whatever. So I'd never taken a lecture on transitions, I had actually just sort of learned it in the cutting room with this editor, John Kramer. So when I was talking to Roger about this, he's so well versed in film history and film theory that I just, I had to sit him back down and the two of us had to sit and discuss transitions. What's funny is we ended up talking for a very long time, about an hour on transitions, before the restaurant we were at kicked us out. <laughs> so... It's a noisy restaurant. Roger and I both like this restaurant. It's the Senator restaurant here in Toronto. And we thought it'd be a great place to just sit down and talk about transitions and just have sort of a, an open discussion and allow it to go anywhere. So this is my sit down discussion with Roger Matusi about transitions. When I was in LA, I saw Steven Soderbergh speak. Hmm. Well, and it was interesting because this person, it was like a big crowd of about a hundred people. And this person got up and was like really angry Adam, because he was going on about transitions and working on transitions. And this person's like, how dare you belittle the writer for the editor <laughs> and all this stuff, right? And I thought his answer was the best. Like, he was like, whoa, you need to take a step back. And everyone's like, because everyone right now, this like this interview, yeah. it was getting off the rails now. And he, uh, he's like, 
I start my transitions in the script phase. If my script writer doesn't know how to make a good transition that'll look good on screen, yeah. they're not going to be my script writer. And, and, and he's like, you think about that from day one, right? Like, as soon as you've got a, two scenes smacked together, how do yeah. we get between them? Right. Yeah, and you don't often see it in, in, um, in episodic TV. I mean, in, in good cable TV, you know, you see it because it's more filmic. But I remember years ago reading Norman Jewison's autobiography, and that, he went on, on and on about it. That when he reads a script, if if the transitions are poor, he said inevitably the script is poor. And he figures that he learned a lot about transitions, not only from his experience filmmaking, but working with Hal Ashby. He said, you know, I'm working with a great editor, and, and we're trying to solve a problem, and he comes up with a brilliant idea, and you go, okay, picture-wise we can't do something, but what about using sound? Mm -hmm. And he said, in the heat of the night, there's some really interesting audio transitions. Um, you know, and, and if you remember the, the film, I mean, because I remembered uh, the film enough that when he, he spoke about the specific, you go, yeah, exactly. But he said that's, but it's all in the writing yeah. and you can, and when you read scripts and you, you don't see it, and I hate what, they, what a lot of screenwriters do, particularly in television, they, they write smash cut. And I was like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> you know, it's just, it, 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 it's, it's a lazy technique because it's not giving the director anything. It's just like, I, I wrote to here and then, well, we'll just smash cut. Yeah. And, it's, and you're going, it's a splice. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, it, it only it depends what the director is going to yeah. do. So now you're forcing the director, if the director's any good, to, to have to reconceptualize all their ins and outs because it's not written. And I, I, I remember reading some script recently, and it was, it was like every third or fourth page, it was like series of smash cut, smash cut, smash cut. And it's like, it should be inherent in the writing. You don't have to say it. Um, I mean, if it's an action, action scene, they're going to be hard cuts, <laughs> you know? I don't... Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's silly. Well, and that's... It's... Like, I, yeah, I hate the word smash cut, and I, I use it. Like, I fall into using it occasionally, too. Like, everyone tends to, but it's like... The thing that drives me nuts about it is... Like, I can see it when, you say, you're in an action scene, and then you cut to a quiet scene. There's this crazy sort of change and shift yeah. that shifts the audience's perspective or view, and that's really interesting. But then you would see it, at, like, I, you know, I might refer to it as a smash cut. Well, <laughs> a film I just saw a couple of weeks ago that had really interesting transitions. Eight, you know, it's the Polish film called Ida. Mm -hmm. So his transitions, because it's... The, the camera work is fairly static. Mm -hmm. It's in black and white. But what he does is to signify something deeply emotional is that his transition is, 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 a, is a composition um, that doesn't adhere to the rules. Mm -hmm. and, and so it forces you to, to think more deeply about where you've just come from and where you're going. And often what he would do is he'd just have a shot and there was no dialogue. It's just the composition tell, it's, tells you everything. I mean, if, if you go with it. Um, and I thought it was really fascinating. Um, 
And if you watch, uh, like the first Wachowski's movie, mm -hmm. Baum, there's extraordinary transitions because they were constantly using the camera movement in and out that created this kind of fluidity of, of, of movement. And I remember watching, this is their first film, and I'm going, I don't know who these guys are, but we're going to hear from them because they've really thought about their transitions. Um, and then, of course, the Wachowskis were back with Matrix, and you go, you know, but you could you could see the intelligence mm -hmm. in their first film. It's crazy to think about like they're thinking outside of the box in terms of not only visual effects right. but visual style in a sense. Well, they they were stamping out their ground. Yeah. You know, they were. You could see that they ha they were going. We have a particular voice, mm -hmm. and. And this is the beginning of that voice. You know, it's it's like the first murmurings mm -hmm. um, of something that you know is extraordinary. You could you could see there was. Um, it's it, what it is 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 uh, too often you you see low budget films and everybody goes oh it's great you can make films for nothing, mm -hmm. and and I go yeah that's true and it's great but what I'm looking at is just description. Mm -hmm. Nobody's really thinking about how we're moving through this story, how we're using composition and movement, um, or sometimes the lack of movement mm -hmm. to get something across. Um, that's why I, I loved looking at Ida. I mean, I'm sure it's going to be one of the best foreign film nominees, because mm -hmm. the story itself is, is quite brilliant. But typically, European style cinema but the great thing about that is uh, they're so far away from Hollywood that they're not making a movie uh, according to North American narrative rules it's just did you see last year's uh, I think it was from Norway I think it was a Norwegian oh, film The Hunt a, no I I always find stories like that difficult to, to sort of watch. Yeah. I, I remember when, when he did Celebration, his first film, and people were running around, see, you can make, you know, you can make low-budget films and, yeah. that, are, that are great, and you go, yeah, yeah but it, that, that film worked because the script was so good. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, it's brilliantly directed and cast, um, but the dogma manifesto that those guys came up with it was almost like it didn't matter it was just it was such a brilliant story and brilliant execution but transitions are just they're absolutely essential to to, to great well, storytelling where would you start with transitions in talking to uh, if you were going to talk to students because like i was saying before the way i learned was basically by sitting with an editor and an editor saying that's a good transition this is what you need for the scene or but when you I mean, the great thing about that David Lean documentary, because every, all the filmmakers, they all talked about his transitions. Mm -hmm. And when you think about, like the famous one in Lawrence of Arabia is when Peter O'Toole is in this... Strikes the match. Strikes the yeah. match. I mean, we're, gonna, we're going to Arabia, blows it out, and I, yeah, it's yeah, ingrained yeah. in my mind. <laughs> but it, it's, it, it's such a dramatic introduction mm -hmm. to the world he's going to. You, there's no shoe leather. It's just, but the image 
of, of striking a match, heat, and then cutting to that sun, and you can see the heat waves. Mm -hmm. You know, you instantly, you know, you're you're cooking. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's just brilliant filmmaking. Um, and I'm sure to, uh, Robert Bolton, he talked about mm -hmm. the, the, those kinds of transitions. It's, it's kind of like uh, what sometimes, how do you come up with the most creative ways of cutting forward? Mm -hmm. It's not just sort of, oh, we're driving, we're, we're going to Philadelphia, so we, we leave in a car and the car leaves the frame, mm -hmm. and then we cut to Philadelphia to a sign that says Philadelphia. And you go, yeah. well, yeah, it, it's functional, but it's not interesting. You know, I don't feel anything, and I think transitions should impact in terms of moving through time and space and developing, you know, the, the emotional, uh, you know, through line in a, in a story. Um, I mean, we do it differently. I mean, what the Wachowskis did in, in, in Bound is different than what David Lean did, but it's it's thinking that you want to keep something moving forward. So you, you come up with inventive ways that, that are, uh, you know, visually appealing, um, that make great, you know, great leaps forward. Um, it's not just always cutting, like in episodic TV, you, you know, you see a lot where guys, you know, oh, here's, we're going to cut from a wide shot, and then we're going to cut to a close-up of the coffee mug yeah. coming up, and then the camera will follow. The mug up to my mouth, and you know, and then we'll get into the you know a scene back and forth. Yeah, I mean that's a way of getting in and out, but it's kind of banal. I remember in university sitting and just going through scenes and trying to figure out, and and because you you tend to like humans just tend to do this. We you know compartmentalize yeah. and try to structure and create like this is how things are done by rules. And I always sort of had it broken into two ways of either revealing the scene or showing the audience everything and going in. So you either pull out or go in. Right. Is that something that you would... You know, it just what came to mind was um, Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. Mm -hmm. Every scene starts or ends with a reveal coming out or going in to a composition based on... Uh, an English landscape painter of the time. Th but that was a transition of, of revealing the time and place that the characters were situated in um, and using the paintings of that time because they were, in a sense, those paintings were the photographs mm -hmm. of, of, of the time. And, and, and Kubrick very cleverly um, you know, used that to, to to get from, and what it is is you you can you can move through time quite effortlessly that way, and yet still keep people focused on on what the story structure is and where the characters are going. It's almost like the point of every cut. Every, every cut should be moving something forward. It's um and transitions, which is point of like cutting within a scene, but then the ins and outs of scenes or sequences. The transitions help us move forward, but also encapsulate all the emotional effects that mm -hmm. have transpired from uh, the scene that you're just in and where you're going to go. Um, like the, the thing with the match, it's, it's because you've been watching Peter O'Toole mm -hmm. play with the lit match with his hand, which is, he's showing how much pain he can sustain. Mm -hmm. 
because where we're going, he's going to suffer enormous physical pain through the rest of his, his, his personal story. So it, it's just that moment alone explains so much about that character, you know, in the context of where he's going. Yeah. That this is, this is the anvil that he's going to be formed on. So it's just, they're great devices. Mm -hmm. But I think it's, it's that, that's where Sonnenberg is right with it. Yeah. You know, you have to, you have to think about it in, in the writing. Yeah. Um, you can't just, uh, I mean, that's the thing we often don't like about so much episodic stuff is, is it's, it's all tell, 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 you know, there's no, uh, because I remember years ago, somebody who, uh, who used to run BBC drama uh, in, in London, when, he was a Canadian and when he came back, he, he had retired and I remember asking him, how, you know, you're young and you're going, well, how did they do it? I mean, you know, you, you worked with all these famous writers and directors, and, you know, and uh, how did they do it? And he, his thing was that he made the directors play out the script before he approved. Like, well, you know, acted out in front yeah, of them? Or? Yeah, to some extent, you know, how are you going to shoot this scene? Mm -hmm. Because he, you know, if he read something and it was overwritten, and he'd go, the reason it's overwritten is because somebody can't see the scene. So you're the director. How are you going to succinctly tell this story? Mm -hmm. and, it would, and he could tell whether the script was worth doing to some extent. Because he said, you know, you could, you could go back and work on the writing. But then you could tell that the director had an idea of what the essence of, of the story was. Um, and then it would strip out all the explanatory material. Because the director would then find ways, visual ways, of saying it, which is what David, what you can do in, in feature films, you know, because, you know, you, in, in, in those days where we, you really had the cinema versus the television. So the big screen, when you see that match transition to the sun, it's enormous. Yeah. The, it just, you can't. You can't get that effect watching it on an iPhone. And that's the other thing that w we now have to learn, is that editing used to be either the cinema or television. And now it, it's everything from IMAX to, an IMAX to a smartphone. And the editing styles, you know, webisodes, the editing styles have to change mm -hmm. for each of those formats. I mean, people are now so used to things always moving so there's got to be you know there you know, when when people go half the time people you know producers come in and go more cuts more cut, yeah. cuts they have no idea why they're asking for it. I mean or how it's going to affect the story but it's the assumption that if 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 there isn't enough cutting there isn't enough movement and therefore people will get bored and part of it now is because so many people are multitasking yeah. You know, they're watching something here, they're watching something over there, and... Um, well, I admit, I'm guilty of that. I do have my iPad out yeah, a lot, yeah. but... No, I... But, but people are doing that yeah. all the time. You know, it's a... Uh, I, I watch 10-year-olds sitting, you know, with a smartphone and a computer. No, really and they're playing games on two different setups mm -hmm. at the same time. And... 
you know, and I thought, I'm thinking, you know, it's how you create content for those new viewers. It's going to be really interesting because people can't sustain their attention anymore. But it's funny. It's, you, you either have the theme park rides that Michael Bay does, and that's the most commercially successful film of the year. Or you have some low-budget Polish film, like Ida, and you go, well, as a story, it's much better than... It's, it's like having a good novel. Um, but you know that, you know, a lot of people aren't going to go see it because uh, it's in black and white. I remember being in a, in a chapter, and I was looking for a particular book, so I'm standing in the aisle, and I could hear the voice of, of a couple coming up behind me, and they were talking about what they were going to, what kind of movie they wanted to rent that night. Uh, and they couldn't agree on the genre or whatever. And eventually, they came to the head of the aisle that I was on, and I turned to listen. And the guy stopped and he said, Look, I, I don't care what we watch, as long as it's not in black and white. And she went, Well, why? Because she was thinking of romantic films, like old Hollywood romantic movies. Um, you know, and he just said, Black and white's boring. And I just, I almost walked over and went, Let me tell you, young man. <laughs> and I, it's, uh, I just thought it was a peculiar, you know, reason not to want to watch a film. But then I realized, li listening to other people, you know, it, it's, the history of filmmaking is kind of disappearing for a large group, uh, majority of people because they're not they're not interested in, in where all this stuff comes from. And I find that that even you know young young filmmakers like are not watching enough. They're they're making. Uh, I'm looking at a lot of low budget films at the moment tonight, and I find. People are making m m really um, juvenile mistakes in a way because they haven't been watching, so they're repeating stuff that that didn't work. Uh, and it's, I mean, Steve and I had, had talked about it that when we were starting out, because it was before the digital age, you you weren't distracted by a lot of different things. There was no YouTube. I mean, mm -hmm. there was no, um, there's no streaming. There's, there's none of these things. It was just DVD. Yeah. So, so. Not even DVD, VHS. Well, it, there's that. And then you, you so you, you, you plunk a, a, sh a film in and we broke it down. Mm -hmm. Like we were obsessed with breaking it down. Like why did that scene work? So, you know, with, with Sterla, Steve, and I, and being, if, if we got together, you're going, we want to emulate this kind of movie because it worked, we love it. Mm -hmm. So you broke it down and sort of, well, what did they do? Look at, oh, look at the way they did that transition. Now, how did they, you know, how did they make that work? Was that written? Was the director come up with that? Um, you know, it, I, I just don't find that 
people are making as much of an effort doing that. I mean, the best filmmakers, I mean, when you listen to David Fincher and Steven Soderbergh, all these guys, they're obsessed with this stuff. And people go, well, I want to be next David Fincher. And you go, do you know how hard these guys work? And how much they study. And, as, and, and I don't even mean like reading the book. I mean like what you were saying, where it's like staring at the screen, rewinding, rewinding, yeah. you know, replaying you know, that scene. How over did Ridley there. Scott do that? How did those guys over there do that? Mm-hmm. How, did the, how did those Hong Kong filming? You imagine Quentin Tarantino. I mean, yeah, he's working in a video shop, but he's, he's cranking through that stuff. And he's broken it down. I bet you he... He's he remembered. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he remembers every frame um, of how something was done. Mm-hmm. Um, then he took whatever he liked and he made it into his own. I mean, that's what separates. That's where it's not descriptive. Going, oh, I'm going to copy this. They take it and make it into their own. It, it, it's, it's their personalities make it whatever they're expressing so distinctively theirs that y- you end up embracing it. I mean, you don't. Uh, not everything he does is successful, but there's something compelling yeah. about what he's trying to do that you, know, that you watch it. And you may not feel, I don't feel satisfied by every film he's seen, but I'm amazed by the bravado. And the guts. Yeah. There's some stuff, like watching just certain things, you're like, wow, he's... He rewrites history, literally, and people get mad at him. He's like, but look at how interesting this is now, and look how exciting this is. Well, Werner Herzog does the same thing. You know, it's, uh, I've been, just finished reading his uh, conversations mm-hmm. he did with the uh, journalist Paul Cronin. It is absolutely fascinating mm-hmm. um, how he constructed his documentaries. Um, you know, it's the classic, sometimes you have to lie to tell the truth. Um, Herzog's famous films will be will be remembered long from now because there's something you know, as you say there's a lot of guts I mean it's Fitzcarraldo may be insane but and there's only one person in the world who could have made that film yeah. that's Herzog but that's that's what makes it interesting is that there's only one guy who could have done that um, you know most of this other stuff we're watching is it's just Fuck, anybody could have done this. Or the problem we have is that we do too many films where the scripts would have made good 15, 20 minute films. Like there's nothing in the middle. Um, You know, I watched something the other night and it was just like a Canadian film. It was like such an unoriginal idea. It had a terrific cast, but the pacing was so lethargic. It was just. It's like, does anybody watch movies? I mean, uh, yeah, you don't have to cut as fast as a Michael Bay movie, but I mean, could you move forward? <laughs> the problem is, if, if, if you let the audience get too far ahead of you, mm-hmm. well, they know what's, what's happening, and then you just sit there and sit there. I mean, you end up concocting... Better stories. <laughs> a better story. Yeah. And then when you cut and you go, well, my idea was better than mm-hmm. that. Then you start losing the audience. I mean, I mean that's that's you know Spielberg's trick is he just they're always just frames ahead of the audience. The audience is just already we have like internal clocks. Mm-hmm. We're not necessarily conscious of 
of, of stuff. Mm -hmm. But that's where filmmakers come in. You know, we're aware of, of the effect that this, what the cutting is going to have on the audience. And that's the amazing thing about Michael Kahn and Steven Spielberg, is their pacing is astounding. Um, it's, um, I don't like all of Spielberg's films, but when it works, it's, you forget, you stop thinking, you know, you're just, you, you're just, you're just moving. Um, and it's not about how, how many cuts there are, it's just knowing that this shot has all the information that you need and now we move forward and then we move forward and it's not this endless ridiculous coverage from every frickin' angle with, with umpteen cameras uh, on a simple dialogue scene um, you know and then you know they come in you know particularly with episodic tv and guys do that you get three four hours and then it's like somebody walks in with a box of jigsaw puzzle pieces and sort of dumps it in on the floor and says I don't know what this puzzle is, is about you figure it out and you go well then why do I need you now I want to wrap up the transition stuff and get into the CCE but what um, what would you say are some of the core things that editors need to know about in terms of transitions or what do they need to think about when working on transitions I mean, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure there's, there's a multitude of things and you'd have to spend a fair bit of time just breaking it all down because there's so many different kinds of transitions. But one of the things that I, I know when I've done features and dealing with producers who don't get it is how the eye moves across a frame and how you lead the eye to where you want it to go or leading the eye to a certain place in the frame and then when you're cutting that there's something on the other side mm -hmm. either in that place or sometimes you you want to shake up the audience depending on the genre see mm -hmm. all the genres have different tropes so um, so you might be leading the eye to the left and you cut to, to something on the right part of it is what's the illusion you're trying to create? I mean, the, the magic is you're watching the left hand, the left hand, the left hand, the right hand is created yeah, the magic. Yeah. So it's just being aware of, uh, I, I some, you know, of, of those things. I mean, that's one way of creating transitions, is, um, of keeping the eye moving. Mm -hmm. um, or sometimes, like an Ida, it's about locking the eye into something mm -hmm. because you, you, you want a certain kind of emotional effect uh, based on where you're coming from and then changing, coming with a, a very dramatic kind of composition. Um, I mean, transitions, it's, it's how do you want to move forward and what kind of emotional effect are you, are you trying to achieve? Um, but you whatever the movement is you want it to be meaningful to the mm -hmm. audience it's not just just getting from A to D mm -hmm. and then it, and then I find it it's just what I called it's just descriptive yeah um, it you know there's there's no energy to it um, there's no advancement mm -hmm. 
So that's that's why I, I can see why Soderbergh yeah. goes on about it should be in the writing. It should be the writer should be making evident what's important um, by the kind of transition they write in into it. So that was my sit down talk with Roger about transitions. Now this is the last episode before Christmas. I'm trying to get another fun surprise episode out for the New Year's, which isn't going to follow my traditional format, and it all depends on iTunes. I got an email from iTunes saying that because it's the holidays, they're slowing down approving podcasts to be uploaded, so brand new podcasters who are uploading are going to have trouble, but they said it could also affect the upload of individual episodes for current podcasts, because a lot of times they'll check to make sure that you don't have explicit material when you say there aren't explicit materials. So hopefully that'll be approved or allowed through before the new year, because it's going to be a roundup of post in 2014. With that said, if you find anything post-production related, make sure to submit it at aotg.com. Of course, you can utilize our plugins for your browser to make it a little simpler, aotg.com plugins. And of course, you can get us on Twitter, at AOTG Network. You can get us on Facebook, facebook.com slash AOTG Network. Our YouTube channel has been doing pretty well. We've, we're still building it, so we're still experimenting with various things, but you can get that at youtube.com slash AOTG.com, and dot is spelled out. I'd like to thank Roger Matusi for sitting down with me, despite the interview being ended a little early by the restaurant. I'd also like to thank Lauren Woodcock, my producer. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.